0: One,
1: two, three, four. Professional dancer, choreographer, and director of Harvard's Dance Centre, Jill Johnson has dedicated 30 years to the field. She rose through the ranks of the National Ballet School of Canada, eventually becoming a soloist in the company. She was then invited to Germany to become a principal dancer and researcher in William Forsyth's company, Ballet Frankfurt. She has staged many of Forsyth's work for ballet companies all over the world, some including Paris Opera Ballet, La Scala, American Ballet Theater, and Juilliard. Although Miss Johnson is known as a brilliant teacher and collaborator of the dance community, she will always identify as being a dancer and artist.
0: Can you describe your path to dance and what or who initially inspired you to start dancing?
2: Well, I think dance chose me. I've always felt that it was a vocation and a calling and just a kind of pulling me in the direction. I I just always knew I wanted to do it. And in fact, I don't even think I knew that it was dance. It was just who I was, which is to move in the world and move to music. In terms of who inspired me to dance, I think the first person must be my mother because she, I mean, she's like a child whisperer, my mother. (laughs) She's incredible. (laughs) She's been recently telling us, my brother and I, about you know, stories from childhood and going through the old albums, yeah. it's been a project of hers, so all these stories are emerging. And she would talk about how I was always dancing, she's a music therapist, so oh, incredible. Uh, and, and plays several instruments, so music was very much a part of our lives. So I think I was just really, really lucky to be in an environment where I could be totally myself mm-hmm. for as long as I could remember. So I was in the National Ballet School and had the great fortune of being at the school and, and receiving the training that I did there. And every time the company was in season, we would go and see the performance once a week. So it was just like, this is what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I remember one moment seeing Veronica Tennant in the Sleeping Beauty, and I was sitting in row A. So not the very front <laughs> yes. of the seat, a little bit, right? And I just, I, it was like, I want that. Another really sort of G-force moment was watching Bill Forsyth's Step Text. And I'd never seen anything like it. And I just thought, this is possible? You know, I grew up watching a host of principal dancers under the leadership, for the most part, of Eric Bruhn, And I saw him lead the company for me, was such a model. I think I carry it with me both consciously and unconsciously. The ways that he taught class, he never raised his voice. He was very, in my experience, super humble, although I didn't, I was just a little one, so I yeah. didn't really interact that directly with him. But I saw how he led the company and how every single person seemed to feel important. They just, when he took over, everything made sense in these ballets and he cultivated a lot of new work, collaborative work, commissioned. We had artists in residence. Glenn Tetley was in residence, but all kinds of artists. So I was really exposed to a lot of repertory also. So every time I saw, you know, it was Veronica Tennant and Karen Kane and Mary Jago and oh. Nadia Potts and Gisela Wachowski and Kim Glasgow and Kim Lighthart oh. John Elaine, Owen Montague. I mean, just the artists, Raymond Smith, I mean, there's was just a whole host of those artists and they were very, very different. So that's a long answer to inspiration, but yeah. I, I could probably go on and on. <laughs> yeah. So what inspired you to shift to Ballet Frankfurt? So I was a recent graduate of the National Ballet School, I went in as an apprentice and I was lucky enough to get a, offered a contract halfway through that, just sort of, I did Knutcracker yeah, and so then got I got a contract in January. And this, <laughs> right out of school, and and then two and a half years later, about that, Bill Forsyth was commissioned to make what would become the second detail, so brand oh new work, gosh. and it was unusual because he doesn't often make works outside. I mean, now more so because he's not yeah. the company, but back then it was it was very unusual. It was like having you know a major rock star. It was like having I don't know Jimi Hendrix come to your company. So I. I I was cast in his cast, and as soon as I started working with him, I just, I literally felt I have a really strong image of this kind of a giant European, like, oak doors, set of oak doors, you know, where the handles, yes. <laughs> you and that I opened them up, and there was this field, like, it had opened up the artistry that I had no idea was even there, and then it was home. It was really like, it just, I can remember even what we were doing. Fast forward to, we did Second Detail. Unfortunately, someone got injured, but it meant that I got to go in for her. So I was the second cast for this person, and so I was in the first cast of Second Detail. And during that process, again, fortune and blessings, I was invited by Bill to come and join Frank Rappellet. So needless to say, I did not pause, and I said, okay. (laughs) I I had dinner with Bill and Tom Willems, the composer. I was pinching myself, you know, just to have dinner with the two of them, let alone, you know. Um, So I moved to Germany and and was there for 10 years.
0: So which role for you do you feel like pushed you the most outside of your comfort zone? And could you describe the process of preparing Mm. for it?
2: Mm. I would say... On the one hand, a role that's the, one of the dearest to me, that was the most challenging, coupled with Tracy Kai Meyer, who was one of Bill's wives, I, it was a part of hers that I was learning. And she had a tricky time, came from a very similar background, San Francisco Ballet, mm-hmm. and was in this piece, you know, it was a piece, barefoot piece. It seems funny now because going between those things doesn't, I don't sort of have partitions for those different yes. kinds of, of approaches to dancing but you know she would had a similar approach and she had a really really tough time doing this piece and so she was determined that I wouldn't have that experience. Uh-huh. So she took me through, I mean to the point where we were meeting in the studio on weekends and you know, she would bring, like, banana or pumpkin bread. Oh, it's amazing. Nanny Steffi had made. It was just, I mean, it was just, yeah, it was a very, very special mentoring process. And she was incredibly generous with all, I mean, there was, she held back nothing. She shared all the stories about making the piece, what they were thinking about. And the piece is called The Loss of Small Detail. So it's the second part of Second Detail. Okay. Yeah, it was the most challenging, but really... It was challenging in a good way. Like it wasn't a negative experience. Yes, it was a challenge that I wanted to conquer, and because I had Tracy's help and because she was so thoughtful about that sort of storytelling, history, you know, learning by rote, practice to learn the role, and it was just a really special role. It was something that I would. It would take me days to, often to recover from performing it because you had to excavate. <laughs> so physical.
0: Tell me more about William Forsythe and how he has influenced your career. Collaborating oh with gosh. him and staging his ballets. How do you feel like he has impacted you, not only as a dancer, a choreographer, oh but as a human being? In as general? a human being, I yes. mean,
2: just it's sort of it's really almost defies a way to describe it. I mean, maybe, I asked him fairly recently, I said, was there a main thing that you wanted us to get in the company? Was there something you really thought about? And he said, dignity. Oh, right. And I could weep, I could just, because we got that. Yeah. So I think that really personifies it. You know, I think he gave us all this like trust. He was so generous you know, with us. We all got our moment Mm -hmm. and we were in a company that was so diverse for a ballet company. It was really a radical thing that I think is underappreciated. You know, the experience of making work with him and craft, being part of crafting our form and finding new ways to express in it as a group, collectively. Mm -hmm. As, as individuals that were working toward this goal constantly which was to make art I mean it just it was like a utopia yeah. it was just crazy and so I think being in that environment the more distance I have from that company experience the more I appreciate the depth to which the conditions for invention for empowerment for agency mm-hmm. Uh, for wrestling, I mean, yes. it, it, speaking of Dr. West, Dr. Cornell West, who's just a huge influence in my life as well, talks about paideia, which is like deep learning and a kind of seeking and a Socratic practice of wrestling and what he calls Dr. West, that is, catastrophic consciousness. So only by leaning into the great challenges and struggles of our own, but also of, you know, civic issues like of the day, let's say sexism. You know, it's only by facing it head on in all of its, its complications and structures that we can transform it. So it's ecological, civic, whatever you choose, that it, it, you meet it with creativity and compassion, and then you can transform it. So he thinks, like, the blues, for example, comes out of that. And I think what what I found such deep resonance in, in what Dr. West talks about, because in a way he's naming... What the experience for me was like, I can't speak for everyone, but my experience with Bill was like, it was just this incredible deep learning that became a part of a sort of a way of being Mm -hmm. and and then has then informed, you know, he taught us how to be teachers. I mean, I have teachers and preachers in my blood and my family on both sides of the family. So connecting all of that, it just it, it literally resonated with me. So I, I aim to create those same kind of conditions for students and dancers and and people alike in our community too. So yeah.
0: Do you, do you find
2: as a teacher now you're giving advice that he has given you? For sure, for sure. Never get too attached to your own ideas. <laughs> you know, oh, that's an interesting way. You know, that there isn't necessarily. We talk a lot about rigor and curiosity, and there's sort of a, a playful rigor. In other words, it's not a static thing. Mm-hmm. If you remain curious about just about anything as an artist, you can make it compelling, you know, mm-hmm. ascribing meaning to things. It reminds me of what, there's an, a beautiful visual artist, Jack Witten, Witten, no, Whitten, W-H-I-T-T-E-N, I think. And he talks about, he said, when people ask me what art is about, I say it's giving structure to feelings. And also this notion that we can give meaning to something without it being a singular narrative. Mm -hmm. And that something can have an individualized meaning. In other words, if it's meaningful in the conveyance of the dancer, everyone seeing that dancer or the group of dancers performing will receive something different that resonates with them in their life. And I think that's what... one of the things in particular that Bill opened me up to. So I think the idea that it can be narrative and it can be literalist and representational and also it can be whatever we whatever ideas that we're dancing in service of can can be a conveyance, can be a sort of in a way I think this might be the last question on your list too, but articulating the ideas for which there are no words. Yeah. And for dance it's an analog practice, right? Mm-hmm. So I think there's a certain cachet about that. Both it's tricky for people to you know, that are less familiar with dance, it requires a lot of analog time yes. <laughs> to practice over and over, and that repetition is essential for finding that meaning, mm-hmm. you know, to find the efficiency of the, the execution of the step, but then what is it imbued with? How, the how are you doing it? But I think that also has a special cachet right now in sort of digital. We're not really that impressed with digital stuff anymore. Yeah. The new thing comes out six months later, another thing is rolled out. But if something is crafted by mm-hmm. hand or with the body, I think, I think that's super special. Yeah. What are your views on the future of communication and mm. how
0: technology is changing the way we communicate, read, interact
2: with the world and our imaginations? How mm. is it affecting dance as well? I think human beings are just imaginative. Mm-hmm. I think that technology, we, we don't quite have the tools to, to regulate, mitigate, yeah. sort of put some boundaries. Yeah. They just, it sort of has taken over. And yet technology can be leveraged. I mean, surgery, remote surgery and communication and Safety for kids and, you know, there's all kinds of great things that can, you know, you can reach a lot more people. Accessibility, which is so important in the civic issues of our day. So I think, and and then because we're imaginative, we use technology in imaginative ways, even if it's used for nefarious means. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something, I I will find his name for you. This fellow that gave a lecture here. He was a visitor, the son of the first African American student at Black Mountain College. Oh, my gosh. And he's an educator, a business person, and, and a pianist himself. And he talked about crime being misguided creativity. So I think that we're, our capabilities are still the same. We still have enormous creativity. Digital technology allows us to communicate and use imagination mm-hmm. in all kinds of ways. But I do think it has. It has created a barrier for just simple interactions. And so I think that that has has sort of, there's an isolation, which then compounds this kind of commercial sublimation of isolation and loneliness in Mm -hmm. human. And I think what dance can do, it's a nonverbal expression that can be used in ways to unite people, Mm -hmm. to celebrate difference, to celebrate polyphony as my friend and scholar Nora Zuniga Shah talks about you know it's Mm -hmm. not about being a marching band but actually if we celebrate polyphony there's actually a way that we can all have our signals and cues in in a a way way. that we see those things that we see each other Mm -hmm. and of course dance again it's a nonverbal practice and it's of the body so Mm -hmm. there's an economy to that expression that I think we're finding out ways in which that can be utilized, whether it's arts and social justice. I mean, dance teaches diplomacy and problem solving and complex thinking and sort of considering many different layers of of something in order to find greater understanding. Also to be able to, there's, you know, the the marketplace and the job market is very much about the collaborative workspace. And Mm -hmm. so that's the way dance is also being made now. So I think it's it's both a reflection and and also maybe even a, a solution I don't yeah. know if that's, if it, or it can meet a need of the time. Mm-hmm. I think art now more than ever oh, at it's this so time. necessary.
0: So, can you tell me a
2: little about your role with
0: Harvard's
2: dance program? So, I am the director of dance at Harvard for um, the Dance Center. If you picture the Dance Center, sort of <laughs> the, the umbrella of dance, all things dance at the university, and all the great ways that students can interact with dance. So from student groups, they're student-run dance groups that I think there are now 24 of them. Oh, so I've wow. i got my number got but at least 22. All kinds of, of, of different practices from ballroom to Bhangra to hip-hop to, you know, modern, all kinds of groups. And we have master class series that you mentioned, mm-hmm. which, you know, is a really immediate way for people. Either they've had a ton of experience in dance or not a lot, They can really, in any given year, get uh, a host of perspectives that hopefully, you know, the inspiration is to, or the the goal, the aspiration, is to to expose students to how dance makers, Mm -hmm. choreographers, um, dancers, practitioners really think about the field and how they go about doing their research. Mm-hmm. And often we try and build a question and answer into that programming too, so students have a way, especially here to, to sort of say, see. how do you make a living yes. doing this? And, you know, sometimes some of them can have pretty extraordinary parental pressure Oh, I'm sure. You know, we have got to make a living, and, and, and that's a very good question, but it is mm-hmm. possible. So master classes, we also have our curricular courses, many of which now run through the Theatre, Dance, and Media concentration, so I'm the director of Dance studies within that concentration as well. And, and then we have an affiliate, the Office for the Arts, which is an extracurricular entity, and we have extracurricular classes. Um, like an open studio, so people can do drop-in classes oh, in so Bharatanatyam or hip-hop, or contemporary ballet. We have a whole host of things and we're growing consistently. So
0: that really is gonna, I think that opens up the door a lot yeah. wider for anyone to come in and feel like they can dance and you know, be exposed to dance, which is so wonderful.
2: Yep, and, and really at any level, yes. you know, that's a really important thing you know, our goal is civic, academic, and artistic leadership. So that's another component is our civic workshop series. So we work with the Center for BGTLQ, so named because of the history of the organization, mm-hmm. um, with the Women's Center, with you know all partners across the university. So in our civic series, we really want to respond to both issues that are really pressing and important to us, but also so that the people on campus know that we're a site Civic discussion mm-hmm. that we're equally flummoxed by some of the same it, yeah. things. That's right. What well, we were talking about earlier—the yes. dance. You know, it, it doesn't matter if you dance here. Yeah. But just know that this is a space that's thinking about the civic issues mm-hmm. of our time, and 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 in a way, we have some dexterity here, which is really great to be able to respond to those things and you know organize a talk very mm-hmm. easily and, and do that. So. Programming is based on that to make sure that we have the flexibility to do that. Um, Part of the curricular courses are performances, so we have performances twice a year as well, Uh either here at the Dance Center or at theaters on campus. We have student residencies, emerging choreographers, so they're mentored. Students can apply for an emerging choreographer's residency, which is a term-long residency. And our guest artists, together with some key, either choreographers from the area or we have guests come in to mentor students and Mario and I Mm -hmm. mentor students as they develop their work or, which could be a symposium, it could be a work in progress, it could be a fully wrought piece, whatever they decide. And then they they show it either here at the dance center or at a... So it's very much open, they have. Very open. And a lot of interdisciplinary work too. Connection to sciences and architecture and, and design often. And then there are student group residencies, so student groups can also apply to have a residency here, and there's mentorship as part of that as well. But that's, I think, the most helpful way is to say that I'm the director of dance at Harvard, or the Harvard Dance Center um, and Dance Studies. So So
0: as far as creating works, what is the process of preparing to create a ballet or a new
2: dance work versus staging Mm. a piece that has already been created? So create, well, and it's funny, we were talking about that word staging, right? That is even a funny word for us that we've adopted because more people understand what that means yes. as opposed to, because it's really setting a work, yes. which there's also even more meta confusion around that. I think this will be interesting to the literary folks because setting a work for, at least in my experience, for most people means that you're, you're setting an existing work on a new group of people. Mm-hmm. For some, setting a work means creating a new work. That was your question. Yes. Right? Yeah. The difference. I mean it depends where I'm making the work and for whom and all of those those great questions when one is lucky enough to be commissioned to make something. Typically I like to I, I'm constantly thinking of ideas that are sort of little seeds of of what a piece might be. Oh, that'll be an interesting piece. So there'll be I'll see something or hear something, and so I usually have a collection of ideas that are just you know in building like up idea storage, <laughs> and or the garden maybe <laughs> is better. And and so I'll have an idea and think, okay, I think this might be a good match for this this particular mm-hmm. group in this process, and then I I like to just sit with the cast and and see if the idea is of interest to them or what it sort of provokes for them. Mm -hmm. Because one can have an idea as a choreographer, but if it it doesn't connect with the people you're making it with, then it's not the Mm -hmm. right idea for that time. It doesn't mean you have to scrap the idea, Mm -hmm. it's just not the right match. And I like to find out, you know, increasingly I'm just fascinated by people's stories, you know, their Mm -hmm. biographies, their histories. So I like to ask people about their their histories and again it depends if it's a huge group of people mm-hmm. but you know if it's a duet or a solo I really like to even if I like to ask them about their stories even if I don't utilize that in a direct way it's it still informs what how I make work for them And impacts what you're going to create it does yeah music figures very heavily into the sort of nuts and bolts of creating structure Mm-hmm. Uh, phrasing, you know, compositionally, but also just as a state of being, allowing movement to emerge. I'm very iterative in my process. I don't. I have an idea of what I would like to do, and I have a plan, and then, and then I get into the studio and yeah. see where it leads us. I, I prefer to just gather a whole host of material and then as, assemble, assemble it in a way that makes sense for the idea of the piece, and then it keeps evolving. In an educational setting, I actually uh, work with students on really being transparent about the process, not that I'm not when I'm making work for, for more professional dancers, but I like to, to sort of expose them to a way of, or uh, uh, methodologies of making. Mm-hmm. So involve them in decision making, or say, I made this decision because so this giving is counterpoint. So yeah. right? Which, yeah, and, and having that practice in collaborative process, because it's very unique, yes. you know, not a lot of environments create that, especially in an undergraduate setting, in a liberal arts setting, very much a lecture structure mm-hmm. behind a desk, you know, so, so I try and expose students to that process and, and have them have agency within that, so they mm-hmm. have the real practice. Um, when I'm staging work, I do think a lot about the conditions that I alluded to before, in particular, because most of the time I'm setting bills work, I want to set the environment for the piece to thrive and the dancers to thrive within it Mm -hmm. so giving context i might give a bit of a workshop which is a casting Mm -hmm. is a way of casting rather than just having the names on the list or watching class you know and also try and give as much equal opportunity to everyone as possible, regardless of rank. Some companies, it's it's easier to do that than others. And it's also it's a way of equalizing a new experience for everyone. So if you're introducing a new idea, there's no hierarchy there. Yeah. Everyone's encountering it for the first Everyone's time. Everyone's on the same level. Yeah, and they kind of learn together, and that becomes a part of the process. It also gives some physical context rather than just jumping into yes. something. <laughs> yeah. You you know, the, the idea is to give the dancers insight into the ethos, the governing principles of how the piece was created, constructed, mm-hmm. functions, and then where they find their voice in it. Um, again, trying to give dancers agencies sometimes, you know, especially ballet dancers, aren't used to and and yeah. this is changing, but aren't haven't been, let's say used to being able to offer their own opinion like the do you want to do this to the right or the left I don't know tell me well but what feels better you know <laughs> yeah, that because Bill <laughs> would always say well what what feels best? What's the solution from the inside? What feels mm-hmm. like the right? Where should it go? That's such you know? a great
0: approach, though, because I, I think as dancers, you're so used to being told it has to be a right, right turn. Or well, and I mean,
2: sometimes it does. Yes. And you're setting, especially the classics. Oh, thing, yeah. And you have, and there's a beauty in that, and there's tremendous freedom of tra- you know striving for perfection in that too, and and you can bring those proclivities and and aspirations mm-hmm. to the process as well, but. It's just setting the tone for the approach and then I set about I mean then it's just you tell everybody what music they're on yeah. and what they're doing in the music and what their spacing is and you piece it together and it's quite a collaboration mm-hmm. I really I learned something every time yeah and working with all the different companies oh my sure God. I mean you've
0: worked with San Francisco Valley and currently with
2: Boston Valley Paris yeah. Opera Ballet
0: Moscow mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm. yeah Iceland, everywhere Scotland yeah NDT but I mean and I just love dancers. I do just special, special people. So I, I I want to take care of them too. You know, not in a coddling way, but I want to make sure that they just feel really hurt.
1: This is Hannah Steinkamp with the Creative Process. I'm an associate podcast producer focusing on topics relating to dance, psychology, and art therapy. I'm currently a student at Virginia Tech, majoring in psychology, and working towards a minor in creative writing and studio art. It's been a while since I lost that foot into a ballet studio. Before attending college, I was on track to become a professional dancer and was being considered for an apprenticeship with the National Ballet of Canada, where Jill Johnson cultivated her own success. Although I'm no longer in the world of ballet, the young dancer in me is thrilled to be able to connect with such an accomplished artist. Jill Johnson's words moved me to tears as I finally realized how much I long for the freedom of expression, whether through dance, art, or writing. Throughout the interview, Ms. Johnson refers to ballet as a language. She describes ballet as having another language to use in order to navigate the world, and later delves into how art can act as an imaginative way to frame and interrogate current issues. From a psychological perspective, we as humans involuntarily speak through nonverbal communication. Physiological changes in our bodies act as natural cues for how we might be feeling. Feeling anxious is a result of stressful stimuli causing our heartbeat to quicken. Therefore, we might unconsciously pick up our walking pace, our movements may become more frantic, we might even break a nervous sweat, or the muscles between our eyebrows may furrow to present what we register as a worried facial expression. Body language is such a powerful and necessary tool in communication, especially when it comes to conveying abstract ideas. This is because body language and movement are directly rooted from our feelings and emotions, whereas in a spoken language we are choosing words to describe said feelings. I think what's beautiful about this is that everyone can read and speak this body language. It's a universal gift, it's human, and it's innate. To be honest, I never really thought about ballet as a language, but once I listened to Jill Johnson's interview, it's like everything clicked and I was reminded why I love and miss performing. I think this is a perfect time to share one of my all-time favorite quotes by author Stephen King. The most important things are the hardest to say because words diminish them. I came across this quote not too long ago, and it's resonated with me since. It took quitting ballet in order to realize how limiting words can be. It took four years of not dancing to finally realize that I speak, live, and breathe through art. Since childhood, classmates and teachers have described me as rather quiet, shy, or don't have a lot to say. Even in recent years, people closest to me have chosen words like aloof or uninterested to describe me. I always felt a bit misunderstood, but those feelings always disappeared when I was performing. I belonged to the stage and to the orchestra. I felt like I had something to share with the audience to the theater. I craved that adrenaline rush, the goosebumps, and this unexplainable sense of freedom within myself that I didn't have anywhere else. However, I wasn't quite mature enough to make that connection yet between how I felt more myself on stage versus in the classroom, I was also struggling with considerably low self-esteem and anxiety, which ultimately hindered me from reaching my full potential. One of my mentors at Richmond Ballet, Jasmine Grace, recognized my love for ballet as a student and would consistently pull me aside after every performance. She'd look me in the eyes and tell me, Hana, give more, you're holding back. You have everything you need, you just need to stop limiting yourself. For years, she encouraged me to let loose and to be fearless, and for years, her advice went over my head. As a young dancer, I would get frustrated. I thought I was giving it my all, to be then told my efforts weren't enough. I find it shocking that she was able to see something in me that I wasn't even aware I was hiding myself. Unfortunately, I fell victim to this need and obsession over achieving the perfect ballet body, an unrealistic standard that was being constantly promoted by the environment. I hate how prevalent this stereotype is in the ballet world, because it negatively affects how society views dance and is an obstacle for many aspiring dancers. Near the end of the interview, Jill Johnson addresses this problem. She concludes that the dance community has its own work to do, and once again emphasizes this need for expression, creation, and the invention of body language when words just don't do justice. As the director of all things relating to dance at Harvard, I truly believe that Jill Johnson is doing exactly what needs to be done in order to keep ballet alive, relevant, and appreciated. I won't spoil any more of this podcast, but I want to end my interlude by thanking Jill Johnson for opening up a brand new perspective about art that I have never considered. I simply cannot imagine how many individuals she has impacted as an artist, director, dancer, and choreographer. I've learned that it's never too late for self-discovery and growth, and that there's endless possibilities in the world of art and imagination. In my head, this opportunity to work on Ms. Johnson's podcast has all been part of my own creative process. And with that being said, let's get back to the interview.
0: Now, when you're assisting on the creation of a ballet, is that now what's that process like? For example, for Blake
2: works, since you assisted on that with him and he was creating that, what was that like? I was so lucky to also be with my colleague Christopher Woman who's just a genius, and and the two of us know each other so well. So the three of us know each other. I mean, yeah. for for decades. So we really know the inner workings of the nonverbal communication and so we basically act as translators. Bill would sort of do something, mm-hmm. and you know they would kind of stand there and say, "What was that?" And we would try and translate. You know, we had technology talking about technology. We had an iPad, and we were You'd filming film in real time, and then look at it and go slow motion. <laughs> you know, so that was really helpful.
0: You're almost like the guinea pigs. In yeah, a
2: right. And 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 the human hard drives in a way. And so as the, you know, we would learn the ballet as it was being created, and then. Help multitask you know if there was a rehearsal with a group section and one part of the group was finished I would go and clean that or Christopher would go and work on something or we work on a duet so it was a it's a real collaboration and in tandem work and so much fun because you get I mean you just get to see that feeling of having a work made for you it's just you know encouraging them or give them little strategies oh this is a turn just think of you know all the little tricks and so, yeah. So, what works for you uh, dancing have
0: inspired or taught you the most, would you say? Or now having like staged, which works for you have inspired you the most?
2: Mm. In a way, I think I would just say the works inspire me. All of them in a different <laughs> way, cool. yeah. Because I think it, what the, the common commonality is that it, it just, to see the trajectory of dancers' growth mm-hmm. and their artistry within these pieces, that the, the, they've been structured in such a way that they find their voices, mm-hmm. it's unbelievable to witness. And in usually a very short period of time, you know, a, a career, six weeks at a time, or, you know, you do it in stages, but, and did you say what has influenced me, or? Which works
0: from staging them have taught you the most, do you feel when you're staging them, you feel like you have grown so much? I, I just,
2: I learn every time I stage a ballet, I learn mm-hmm. so much, you know, whether it's communication strategies, you know, cause not everyone receives information in the same way. Yeah. So to be able to tailor make something, for someone, or, or describe it in a way that they can better understand, you know, some people like numbers, some people like visuals, some people like, you know, pretty direct, you know, um, directives for coaching. So, and just also I learned, you know, someone has an idea. I've never thought of that yeah. before. It's, it's a living, breathing thing. It's not, it's not a finished project.
0: Mm-hmm. So, dancers, directors, stagers have such incredible memories. How did you develop <laughs> that? And what are your techniques for remembering so many ballets?
2: <laughs> there are many techniques. There's some sort of practical things. I think, I think I'm lucky that I pick things up quickly. So, I, you know, I think I'm just lucky to have that particular skill set. Bill also gave us um, tools, you know, ways of thinking that that help us. Also, he instilled in us a sort of you don't have to perfect it and think about it and know it and then do it. You just do it until you have it. And so one of the strategies I found is that I I just watch the whole piece through like four or five, six times. I just watch it. And I don't think about, oh, I have to get each thing. I just watch it so I have like a big picture, like mm-hmm. I can kind of, oh, and then this is that part. Okay. The small details Start will come later. To, yeah, mm-hmm. put it together. And you just, I go section by section, and then I write down, okay, this is everything I have to learn. So I know what I have to do, and I'm just gonna check, check each it all off. one off. Yeah. And I have this system that I, I write down how many eights or sixes or however many there are. Mm-hmm. So I know, okay, I've got 13 sixes. So, first six, I got it done. So because it can be yeah. just like, oh, there's so much material. I mean, I have different strategies of, you know, depending on how late at night it is. I Chris and I, because Christopher stage does a lot of work too, and, and there are many different approaches, but he, for instance, can get up in the morning and do it. I can't. I have to do it and then sleep on it yeah. because my brain, it somehow feels like it sits, and then the morning I can't. Otherwise, it's just that to get, you can get overwhelmed. Um, and then, As I'm teaching, there's only so much I can keep in my brain at one Mm -hmm. time. Oh, I'm sure. And you sort of brain dump, and just you know, you work with dancers and say, "Now you are the keeper of this information." (laughs) And you can always go back; it comes back right away if you have to review it. But it's just getting it out. Recall, yeah. Yeah. So it's fascinating. Yeah.
0: Does he usually have
2: names for his steps, or is it? Yeah. Well, sometimes it's it's. I don't know if it's called melismatic when you zoom I mean, <laughs> you know like when gold does when he plays so we do a lot of that um, but even like musical cues we'll say it's on the gay. <laughs> you know um, so there are those that short to help end. remember yeah and that it also because if you generate some fun around that it takes the burden off oh, a remembering bit of, everything yeah because it's not it's not the most joyful part of the process yeah. you know the fun comes once you learn so I try and really be efficient, ready for every question, and be prepared.
0: Okay, so how has your perception changed from being a dancer to now being a teacher, choreographer,
2: stager? I know we talked about this a little, that you're always a dancer. So I think I see it again as this widening, so I just, along the dance continuum, as my knowledge expands, and and I'm self-actualizing as a person, as an artist, as an educator, as a stager, it just—it's a widening path, and I see them all part of the same continuum. They're just different, different aspects of the field that are really compelling and interesting, and mm-hmm. and can have, they have unique challenges. You know, you find out more if you lean in. I call it joyful jujitsu, where you just <laughs> lean into the challenge. It's that yeah. catastrophic consciousness. Yeah. It's just so Socratic. It's so of the body and in the mess. You know, and then just. When you see people, I mean, especially a stager, a coach, and teacher, when you see people, when you when we see them have that moment in their body, it's really rewarding. I can think of, there's a student named Darian who had never danced before, and he came to an improvisation composition class in his um, senior year. And I'll never forget the smi- he, this, like, sense of discovery, and there was this particular smile that I just saw him so i just had no idea this was even possible yeah. you know and so in a way that's a mission to sort of how do we as a field how can i contribute in some small measure to that moment of being in the body and it's and it's their own like yeah it's their self. it was it's them yeah thing. i mean i don't certainly i don't think it's about sort of saying something and people nodding in class and there's this sort of obedience contract it's very much about that exchange and finding ways to get these in, individual nuances and really it's it's like having another language to use in order to negotiate navigate the world you know that's the hope especially in this setting you know uh-huh what are the ways in which we're preparing young people to negotiate the world they'll be graduating into, you know, that they themselves can They feel empowered to have empowered a voice. and and, and, and yeah, and, and that what does that voice, you know, the voice is their body, too. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. words, and, and that um, the, the sort of citizenship of artistry has always been important to me.
0: So tell me a little about improvisation, Mm, and how did you learn to improv, and how do you, like, what is your approach
2: to teaching improv? Okay, so I love improvising. (laughs) In a way, I don't even know, I I don't, I couldn't even say, well, I like it because, it just, (laughs) it's a way of being, and a way of single-minded focus that's just... It's something else. It's a facet of dancing that's very special. Mm-hmm. And my, the first time I learned to improv was with Bill Forsyth. In that process with Second Detail, I was doing mm. the Funky Chicken. I think that's what we called it. The I Funky Chicken. Some kind of, I don't know. It w- eventually became, you know, we were developing material collectively, you know. But I felt very comfortable um, doing it. And it was a surprise to me because I, I had... Well, coming really, from a classical dance background, yeah, too. Yeah. I mean, we. What was a huge influence, and I think this connects to improvisation for me. I was able to triangulate flamenco, my flamenco training, because I had flamenco all the way through school from age nine to seventeen. So the idea of syncopation, of of the kind of épaulement, but but in a very particular mm-hmm. way, these kind of rotational possibilities. I mean, my teacher, Susana, she's on the board there. Oh, wow. That's Susana and her husband, Antonio, behind her. God rest their souls, both Mm -hmm. of them. So Um, you
0: had both of them from
2: eight to seventeen, you said? Yeah, she, I think she taught us a little later, maybe when we were twelve, something like that, but we had Spanish all the way through school. One of her protégés taught us, Yanni, and, and we learned about the state of being, you know, this whole culture of flamenco was like we, we sang and we clapped. So there's, there's something about that that is connected for me. And in fact, in improvisation classes, I teach some of the the, this internal metronome. I mean, there are so many different approaches to improvisation and there's no right or wrong. That's again, this continuum. I think I've answered part of your question. What was the other part of your question? How did you learn it and how do you how teach it? Oh, so how do I teach it, yeah. So it was, and then it was something in Frankfurt that we developed. So again, mm-hmm. it's like anything, you have a ton of practice at it. And Did
0: you have a lot of courses
2: on it or no? No, I didn't have any. It was oh, just, wow. we just, that was just part of it. the work, yeah. with, working with Bill and, and task-based. So there were very specific sets of instructions, Tasks, one could say they're rules, I suppose, but a set of ideas that you worked within in mm-hmm. order to find the improvisation. Often in tandem with other people so that there was an opportunity for counterpoint with you know, specific things like doing something, you know, a rotational thing with your hands and a part of the phrase. So if everyone is thinking of that, that opportunity for sync ups and, and counterpoint is, is pretty striking. I teach it in pretty similar ways. It's, I have a set of tools that I, you know, all have names that, Mm -hmm. some of which I, you know, we all helped to develop in Frankfurt and some I've just developed on my own. And I have a set of things that I'd like to teach in a term and I start. And then with each group, it goes in a different way. It doesn't go, and in fact, it's pretty elliptical because one thing can connect to the other. Yeah, and it, it just and so, depends on the people. It yeah. does. And, and you know, being able to respond to something that's, you know, some event that's happened culturally that we address and sort of think about what what is it like to lean into that idea? Or, you know, we often use books, you know, like Frank Geary. I have a Frank Geary pop-up book. Oh, wow. <laughs> and we use, so this is very much about interdisciplinary yeah. work for me too. So math and visual art, philosophy architecture, design, nature, you know, dogs. It's it's the sound of of waves, you know, anything that can be, I mean, what we we cultivate anything that can be utilized. So we cultivate a noticing practice, Mm -hmm. which is also a kind of discernment that dance cultivates and what is to me scholarship in dance, where you can notice the subtle differences of different states, of different angles you know to be able to see not just two hands but what is the light and what's the state of the hands and is one flexed or what I mean all Mm -hmm. the fingerprints the you know the rings the light on those all of those details can then be mined for improvisational ideas that you enact and in fact then that is live composition so if you're that active it's my belief that you're composing in real time Mm -hmm. so you could capture it and memorize it and then it would become choreography Right, yeah. so it's not. So I like to also dispel the myth that those those are two separate things. In my view, that's something the They're academy has kind of separated, yeah. and there was a hierarchy that improvisation was like, okay, some kind of like mm-hmm, noodling around that you guys do, and composition is like a thing. And I think my understanding in terms of dance history is that that's that stems out of you know dance is something and we have a score and it's just like (laughs) music you know it came from a great impulse i'm not so sure that's the most helpful framework any longer and so i try and introduce that idea to students that how how is improvisation not composition you know and then especially in a setting like this i would work with students who are from or we do work with students from all kinds of interests so some of them are in this theater dance and media concentration mm-hmm. but some are neuroscientists and some are Just so bio-chemists yeah. and some are writers and so how does it resonate with the studies they're doing and that's a sort of broader reach of dance education to sort of say this isn't separate from what you're yeah. doing you know I mm-hmm. love all the words like transdisciplinary transformation like there's an action in that that's not sort of going dabbling over here and then coming (laughs) back you know it's inter it's interdisciplinary all the inter words too so those are some ways that i approach so shifting
0: back to when you were a dancer what was the funniest thing that happened to you during a live performance
2: (laughs) the funniest thing well, this is a hindsight thing, because <laughs> it wasn't funny at the time, <laughs> and i I'd sort of cringeworthy still. <laughs> so I had one of those moments. It was in Herman Schmerman, and, and it's so funny. I had a friend that was in town watching the show, and you know, when you're touring the world and living abroad, it's not so often that your friends are in, yeah. in the audience. <laughs> so it was this night. It was uh, humiliating. I did like a little coupe, and okay, you know, I was yes. really articulating. I was like... <laughs> And I my heel oh, I, I took the heel off mm. my shoe. And then I had to do I continued doing my solo, my shoe. It just was kept going on going slowly coming <laughs> off. To the point where it was like my what are the bunheads like the toe caps yes. was outside the <gasps> shoe and the shoe was foot. oh my, my gosh. Foot. And I had to just get as far as I could get. And I walked off stage with like, shakone, shakone. <laughs> Well, everyone was floored, but they knew. I, I was mortified. I thought Bill was going to fire me. He was like, oh my God, that oh, that was so funny. He was laughing. Bless him.
0: <laughs> I can't even imagine that with a point shoe. You spun oh. up with a flat shoe. I can't imagine with a point
2: shoe. And I tried to get it back on, and I couldn't do it. So in hindsight, <laughs> it was very funny. My friends started to sort of joke about it, and it was it was one of those, like, too soon. It's too soon. Yeah. <laughs> I I'm sure just, I can't even imagine. Oh, I was, I was absolutely <laughs> humiliated and mortified, but that's a funny story. But a, a funny, funny, let me think. There. I mean, there's so much so laughter. So many that happened in life. So much laughter. I mean, I, I, it's so funny that this memory comes up as one of them. I may have another one to add at some point. But there was a fellow in the National Ballet of Canada. I have to remember his name. He wasn't. I want to say Miko, but that's someone's like Miko. <laughs> but it's very close. Anyway, he could make the cricket sound. Oh my gosh! And he would do that on stage. So he would do it on stage when when the audience was less than enthusiastic, like oh. crickets after after oh. a solo when no one. Or it's like, and he would, especially when we were, you know, made. Let's say Sleeping Beauty. And it's the the court. And yes, he's, oh, he's actually. Wigs on, and everyone is going like this because they're laughing so hard. So that was that was pretty fun. I can't even imagine. There's so many. I mean, it's the worst thing when you have to be serious on stage and
0: then someone cracks a joke. But it's the best. It's, <laughs> the, it's like you can't, you can't. You can't hold it in. It just.
2: Uh, no. I mean, it's just daily. I can think of you know all my colleagues. In Frankfurt, that just especially, but really in companies, that's one of the things I enjoy about ballet companies too. Yeah. Is people get stupid, and it's really it's an essential thing, and it's a gift to be so silly and have a moment where you're absolutely cracking up, and then get back. You to switch work. Right back, it's back a into very character. Very specific thing. Yeah. It's a discipline skill. <laughs> So, if you weren't
0: a dancer, a stage a choreographer, or a teacher, what could you imagine yourself doing?
2: Well, I, you know, when I was younger, I, I definitely, if this dance thing wasn't going to work out, I wanted to be a politician. I wanted oh, to be wow. in the, the liberal yeah. party in Canada. I really looked, you know, I came up through the Trudeau era, which we're now it's Trudeau yes. 2.0, But then, then I, you know, the more I learned about the political system and just how all these things worked, I, I realized that that it wasn't <laughs> it, for you. Wasn't <laughs> for me. But it was like a series. I was always yeah. coming up. I wanted to have like the backup plan yeah. an architect oh wow a physician and not as a career but i have always wanted to be a concert pianist i just always have wanted yeah. to be able to to play the piano it's a very special instrument to me but well, especially with dance too you grow such a close connection with music yeah. yeah but those yeah those would be
0: some things so do you have any forthcoming projects
2: I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, which one? Well, this Boston on Pop Parts that opens tomorrow. We've got a, a really fascinating oral history project that I'm, in a way, it's almost so nascent that I'll, I'll like circle back and let yeah. you know about, but it's an oral history project that I'm super, super excited about. And Dr. West has consulted, I mean, just in like a humble, I'm humbled that he was willing to talk about the project together. Yeah. But What else? Oh, well, we've got, with Bill Forsyth, he's putting together a program with a group of us called A Quiet Evening of Dance. Oh, wow, A Quiet Evening. And it'll include some works that are existing works, and then we'll make some new Pieces, so I'm super excited about that.
0: So, will you be a part of the five-year partnership with Boston Ballet? Did you I stage Artifact?
2: Yeah, I did stage Artifact. My wonderful colleagues Noah and Kathy did, but I've staged a number of works on them even prior to so Second Detail, Vertiginous Thrill of Exactitude, Pop Hearts, Now, and it, you know we continue the relationship. Mm-hmm. I've been working with the Boston Ballet trainees oh, and so the junior fun. company, so I made a piece for the junior company. And you did last a piece year. for BB two, yes, yeah. and. You know, it was really a part of this whole program that we're priming them for a way to think. So my approach is is the twenty first century, or what do we call it? I think, sort of 21st century motion, So tools for that. So we're trying to get, go up through the school and into the company, which is just extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So it's so great that they're curating art, dance art in this way. So that's that's super exciting to be. And just ongoing things here, you know, we're programming for next year and it's always exciting to think about what artists to bring to campus and which courses, you know, thinking of, of how we're shaping students' voices in dance and, and their voices in it within the field.
0: So how is it different for you to work with young dancers versus experienced dancers? I love them all.
2: I, it, it, I aspire to, I have a goal always of meeting them where they are mm-hmm. and, and then going on this journey together. Of dance education, mm-hmm. you know, and what what that means now, and and that they have a voice in in what that means, and what does it mean to them? What are the the great things? What are the challenges? What are the problematic histories? What are the uh, sort of assumptions, long-held assumptions that are no longer useful, like this composition and improvisation mm-hmm. thing that they. I mean, they can be separate, but they're yeah. not not sort of inherently divided. The nomenclature even around you know, what is modern, what is contemporary, what's classical. You know, I sort of think, actually, everything is everything. Yeah, it's all connected in a way. Like, Limon technique is both classical, contemporary, um, and modern by definition. So engaging students actively Mm -hmm. to be thinking through that with us. Those are some things that come to mind. I mean, you know, professional dancers, because they have more practice, and that's what they do Mm -hmm. all day, every day, um, the economy, the efficiency with which they assimilate. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a really special quality that dancers have. It's its a remarkable thing mm-hmm. that they are able to assimilate information and turn something around. So it's something else. Um, and so I think it, it is, in a way, just meeting each internal culture, mm-hmm. thinking about ways in which I can help underscore the important value systems of each organization that i work with instilling you know our our mission here how are we not just saying that but how are we doing that and then it's a collaboration with students so in a way that again it's this i keep saying it but it's this continuum where Mm -hmm. it's just levels of experience but the knowledge in dance itself doesn't change in other words i don't dilute something Mm -hmm. i mean we're not doing double tours and you know in you know, classes that are um, sort of an entry-level dance class, but we're still talking about the same tenets mm-hmm. and value the systems, and, yeah, and use of imagination and uh, rigor and and what research in dance looks like. Mm-hmm. And so it's just in service of a, a broader education or of a performance. So you're, you know, I'm constantly calibrating, which I only learn. I mean, it keeps me on my toes too. Yeah. Um, and and there's a reflective process of that, you know. Again, I, I mean, it sounds cheesy to say, but I learn on a daily basis. Yeah, it's about, a constant <laughs> growing process. <laughs> yeah. And
0: that's what's so incredible about the arts is you you never stop learning. No. They would always say that to us in school. You will always continue to learn. Every day is a new experience. When you wake up, your body's going to be different from day to day.
2: And... Well, bless them for instilling yeah. that, because it's true. And yeah. actually, the moment that that goes away is is time to be a physician. <laughs> yeah, it's time to move on. You yeah, know, or maybe not, I, I don't even know if that would even be a poss- remote possibility, but yeah. So lastly, how,
0: for you, do you keep dance alive and keep people interested mm-hmm. in dance?
2: I suppose, I mean, maybe I'll start with the last piece of keeping people interested in dance, is exposing folks, no matter how big or small an audience, to different ways of seeing, you know, looking at dance as reading dance, how legible is this form for people, you know, what are the different ways they can, what are the different books they can read, you know, Mm -hmm. for an analogy, so that there isn't, in exposing folks to many different ways to make dance and present dance, that people will then See that there are different ways of making and presenting yeah. dance. But that, it, that will expand their understanding. And, and one of the things that I think is important in my view is this notion that there's something to get. You know, that there's a textbook somewhere. Mm-hmm. And in order to get dance, you have to have read, you know, the slew of textbooks on the forum. And then you recognize it, you know. And I think rather than thinking that there's some right or wrong way, is that you bring your experience to a performance and you have everything you need to be able to watch it. Mm -hmm. And dispelling that myth is really important to me, and I'll give you an example. We had a panel of extraordinary minds and thinkers in neuroscience, in history, in teaching and learning, art and architecture, history of art and architecture, and physics. And these are dear colleagues who I have enormous respect for. And we had them come to a dance performance, watch the performance, and then we had an informal panel discussion about what Mm -hmm. they saw. That was the singular question is, what did you see? And all of them were so generous with their time and said, you know, I'd love to... Participant, I don't know what I can add to a conversation about dance, and I said well, that's precisely why we're having the mm-hmm. conversation: is that you don't have to have textbook breaking down knowledge. We don't even have. Yeah. I mean, so in a way, those of us that are experts in the field could arguably have more sort of prejudices and, and blinders because we've got our own. We're so familiar and so practiced mm-hmm. that we've got these unconscious prejudices. But it was fascinating to hear what they saw because they all saw saw such rich. Things. And so, to engage that conversation, mm-hmm. that to make dance accessible in many ways. In other words, ticket prices or free. Yeah. We offer master classes for free here to the dance community because the dance community is the wrong population to ask for money. I mean, it's, a, <laughs> yeah. it's our responsibility sure. to be able to offer yeah. this as as a community, you know, we to participate in the community and have students see us model mm-hmm. that. Well, I think that's the thing. So many people feel is
0: that dance isn't accessible, right. and it's breaking down those walls, like you were saying, to yeah. make everyone feel
2: as though they can be a part of it in some way. Yeah. I mean, it is. It can really be individualized, and, and I think, so having, for example, that panel... And that group of people witnessing the panel, my hope out of that would be that people would say, hmm, actually, I think I have some opinions yeah. about it. I mean, I think it's, it comes out of, I don't even think anymore that it's about misunderstanding. I think it's just a lack of experience with with the form. And so to encourage folks in the same ways that they talk about theater and interpretations, I mean, you have a text, you mm-hmm. know, that's sort of something to root the 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 conversation, and so dance is wide open. It's, yeah. you know, and it's also, you see for the most part, folks that are accomplishing things that you just, it's so, you know, for most people, whoa, that already? It's mind boggling. It is, and yet, you know, that's part of the accessibility that I think is so important is that, you know, people see dances and dances are made that look like the cities and communities that we're in. Mm-hmm. So multiple ab- abilities diversity inclusion you know and not that every piece has to address that but the people that are dancing need to be a reflection of where Mm -hmm. we are in the culture it just is not acceptable anymore you know and and that's not a a direct route either you know there are a lot of structures that we have to really carefully assess and address to open that up Mm -hmm. and peel that away and, and allow for that but there are so many incredible companies that are um forging that and, it, and it's not for everyone that's the thing it's not sort of then suddenly if, if we get we evolve the conversation from I don't get it to mm-hmm. you know what I saw it, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's gonna it's gonna be yeah. everyone's cup of tea because it's you know but that it's I think to make a true incursion into the culture to the dance world the dance community has its own work to do mm-hmm. too so it's both you yeah, know it's like collaboration I mean, it's like making a ginormous piece. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how do we contend with this? And and just there is a special thing about articulating the ideas for which there are no words. So we don't need words to describe it. Mm-hmm. It's it's an ex, it's experiential, and so we're in a a world that's so concretized. You know, we have to prove stuff, and we have to sort of demonstrate productivity and. Why it's worthwhile Mm -hmm. and value, our systems of valuation, you know, commercial. How successful it is usually means how much money it can make, you know. And how can you place a value on solace Mm -hmm. or joy or tenderness? Emotions. Vulnerability, you know. And I think that's dance's gift, Mm -hmm. is to give our own humanity back to us.
0: And that's what differentiates it, too, from any other art form or anything really i mean it's special in itself it's your body language and it's really it's an inner expression as well Mm -hmm. so well thank you so much honestly it was such an honor and for you to give your voice to the creative process it's it's really an honor thank thank you you for the
1: opportunity the creative process podcast is supported by the jan Michalski foundation this interview was conducted by Caroline Doherty and Mia Funk. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Hannah Steinkamp. Digital Media Coordinator was Hannah Story-Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolus and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.